0: Good morning, church. As we continue to worship, I'm going to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, the 8th chapter. Mark, chapter 8, verses 27 through 35 will be our focus passage this morning. And as you're turning to Mark's Gospel, let me, let me just say what many of you have felt over these last few weeks. My, my heart is heavy, and I know your heart is heavy uh, the videos that we've seen—the videos of a few weeks ago of Ahmaud Aubrey being shot in the neighborhood in Georgia—coupled with this week, with the uh, the gruesome video uh, that many of you uh, have wept over, grieve over, there in Minneapolis of George Floyd dying under the knee of the officer as he. George Floyd is, is crying out, I can't breathe. I, I can't breathe. My heart is heavy, your heart is, is, is heavy. As we think of the pain that families and communities have and are and will continue to experience, we, we see even now riots in Minneapolis. We see riots in other cities. Uh, the rioting has descended into looting. In many of these cases, and what is our response to this? Yes, we pray for the families. Yes, we intercede for justice to prevail against those that have committed these heinous crimes and for it to be swift and for it to be decisive. We pray for God's uh, peace to be close to the brokenhearted, family members, and friends that are grieving the senseless acts. We don't just pray, though, we weep and we as the body of Christ, we are called to lament. We lament the brokenness that is represented by these acts that we understand are emblematic of, of deeper fixtures. There's something that is deeply wrong. And when there is injustice anywhere, it is a threat to, to justice everywhere. So, so we as the church, we, we do not stay silent in the face of injustice. So we lament. Now, lament and weeping at times when we have such a frequency, it can lead to two, two places. It can lead sometimes to numbness, and it can lead at times to despair, but neither of those are calls for believers. We, we are called to, as the Sermon on the Mount calls us, for uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we want to work for justice We wanna work for hope in the midst of such difficult situations. And that is personal for all of us who are watching this as believers of Christ. There's a personal responsibility that we have in regard to that. In the midst of our communities, we have a responsibility to work for that, to pray for that, and to not be silent in the midst of these types of injustices. And my heart is heavy, your heart is heavy. And as we come now, we, we, come alongside of of believers who are grieving in very pronounced ways who experience these tragedies in ways that I, I cannot even begin to imagine. So as we pray today, we bow our knees before the Lord. We pray for healing. We pray for unity. We pray for justice. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we open your word this morning. We open it knowing that across our country, men and women are worshiping you this morning, some with with heavy hearts there. Their communities are affected in ways that are so pronounced. There are African American communities of faith that are experiencing these videos in ways that, that I cannot personally begin to imagine. So I pray, Lord Jesus, for our country, I pray for families, Lord Jesus, the families of Ahmaud Albury and George Floyd. We pray for healing. Lord Jesus, we pray for justice. We pray that you would be close to the brokenhearted. And we pray for your direction, for how we can be a part of your kingdom coming and your will being done. We know that that will not perfectly, by any stretch of the imagination, be realized this side of heaven, but we want to work for. Equity and justice give us wisdom as we navigate these uh, difficult, trying days as a country. We pray this in the name of the reconciler, the one who has made us right with you, God, in the name of your Son and our Savior Jesus. Amen. We are in Mark's Gospel, the eighth chapter. to read our passage this morning that uh, will guide us. It starts in verse 27. As you're looking in your copy of God's Word, it reads this way, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And They told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Mark chapter 8, especially these passages that I've just read to you, are really the turning point in Mark's gospel. It's interesting in so many ways because Mark's gospel is a rapid gospel. It is a fast-paced gospel. Uh, we see him baptized at the outset we, we skip past the Christmas manger scenes in Mark's gospel and Jesus Jesus is immediately doing things he's immediately calling people to repentance. The kingdom of God is upon hand. He's immediately calling disciples. He's immediately healing people. He's immediately uh, going about uh, coming alongside of those who are outcasts, the the lepers, those who have illnesses and sicknesses who would have been considered unclean. He's raising the dead back to life. He's walking on water. He is feeding the 5,000. And then all of a sudden in Mark chapter eight, at this point, Mark slams on the brakes. And what has been this rapid succession, one thing after another, Mark slows down. Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem and he ultimately commits himself to the destination of the cross, to his own death. It's in this moment that Jesus begins to pull the disciples. Who do people say that I am? In many ways, the disciples are giving to Jesus a reckoning of what Jewish citizens of the day would have thought. It's sort of a family feud kind of thing here. We've surveyed 100 leading Jewish citizens, and the top three answers are on the board here. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. And then Jesus personalizes it, doesn't it? He says, I'm not just interested in what they say, but who do you say that I am? Peter, impetuous. Peter. Peter has no hesitation jumping into a conversation. Peter immediately has this beautiful confession, you are the Christ. Ding, ding, ding. Peter's right. He gets it right. He is the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation for the Old Testament word Messiah. Peter has the title right, but what we're going to discover, he has the meaning wrong. Peter wins the prize for getting the title right but what Jesus begins to say is yes you're right I am the Christ I am the Messiah but my mission is to go to Jerusalem and not do what you think I should do which is to overthrow the Roman invaders to be able to set up the Davidic kingdom there in Jerusalem but ultimately I'm going to Jerusalem to lay down my life. Now for Peter he had no concept of a crucified Christ it, only for Peter, the, the Messiah is a conquering Messiah, a conquering Christ. But in this moment, Jesus turns it on its head and, and says, no, I'm, I'm going to lay down my life. I'm going to win a spiritual victory over the enemy of Satan, hell, and death itself. But it is going to be by me laying down my life. I can't help but to think of this passage in light of, of a movie many of you have seen, uh, maybe in this uh, quarantine, social distancing days, you, you've been able to re-watch The Princess Bride. It's a silly movie, and I know I shouldn't say that. I know for some of you this is like your favorite movie, and you know every line to it. And so certainly for those of you that have seen this movie know where I'm going to head with this, uh, you have the kind of arch villain, Vecini, who has captured Princess Buttercup and off they go, he's got Andre Giant, Andre the Giant in his entourage, he's got Inigo Montoya in his entourage, and they get into a boat and Wesley is dressed, I know if you've not seen this movie you have no idea what I'm talking about here, but here's the point. So they're on the boat and Wesley is trying to catch up with uh, the princess, the love of his life, and the villain looks back at the boat that continues to get closer and closer and closer and closer and he says this word, inconceivable. They, they hit ground, they're scaling. This cliff, there's big Andre the Giant's got all of uh, the, this villainous entourage upon his back, and he's climbing this rope, and they look down, and there is Wesley, and he's catching up with him. And, he, and again, Vecini uses that word, inconceivable. To get to the top, he cuts the rope, and instead of Wesley falling to his death, he looks down, and he's caught himself, and he's climbing the cliff. And then once again, he, he says, Inconceivable. So it's in that moment that Niko looks at him and says probably one of the most famous lines in the entire movie, you keep using that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. And really, this is where Peter is. He's got the word right, Messiah, Christ, but he's using that word in a way that it's never intended to mean. Uh, for Peter, the word's right, the meaning is wrong. Now, what's interesting about this is in in your life and in my life, we can be very much like Peter. Uh, How do you respond to Jesus' claim to be the Messiah, the the Christ? Uh, C.S. Lewis was really helpful in his book, Mere Christianity, where he says, that in in light of the gospel accounts, we only have three responses, the trilemma, the uh, the three options that we have. And I'm not trying to add to C.S. Lewis here, I know that's sort of like almost heresy, but I think we really actually have four options in in light of what the Bible reveals to us about Jesus. Uh, One option is that Jesus was a person who lived and said that I am the son of God and I've come to reveal Uh, sinfulness and to bring about the redemption and the rescue of humanity through the cross and through my resurrection. And we can look at those claims and say he was a liar. Uh, We can look at the claims that here is a a person who claimed to be the son of God, who can forgive sins, who went to a cross and was raised on the third day. and He wasn't just a liar, but maybe he was a lunatic. Or I think adding to what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, I I do think some people just say, well, this is just a legend, actually was a person named Jesus, he actually did live, but his followers, they heaped upon him legendary qualities after his death. So there are the options that you have in light of the Gospel account as Jesus looks at all of us and says, who do you say that I am? In light of the biblical revelation, we have to make a claim, was he a liar? Was he a lunatic? Is this just a legend? And if the answer to these questions is no, that there actually was a person who lived and his name was Jesus and he lived a perfect life and he died a saving death. He was raised on the third day. The only true response to this is not liar, not lunatic, not legend, but ultimately Lord. Now it's here where we are like Peter. Because we, many of us that are, are, are in the church and many of us who, who claim Christ, we, we don't have any hesitation in saying, of course he's Lord. But I think we use that word Lord, but I'm not sure we mean what it actually means. And this is what's so helpful about this passage here. When we think about Jesus' claims upon our lives, he helps us understand that the only true response to who he is is that ultimately he is the Lord and ruler of our life. Well, what does that look like? Well, look in your copy of God's Word. In verse 34, Jesus spells it out here to Peter. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Lord of your life? In light of his life, in light of his death, in light of his resurrection, what claim does he have upon your life? Well, from this passage, the Lordship of Christ means the denial self. The Lordship of Christ means the denial of self. Uh, So often in our culture, we just think if you deserve it, or if you you deserve anything that you desire, if you desire it, you deserve it. You deserve every one of your desires. To find yourself, you have to be true to yourself. This is what the cultural climate sort of sells us. This is the bag of goods that, that we just swim in automatically. But hear what Jesus is saying here. If you want to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. If you want to find yourself, you have to deny yourself. If you want to actually discover your life, you have to lose your life. It, it is this call not to gratify your every whim and wish. It isn't, as Jesus tells us here, that we deserve anything and everything that we desire. Some of our desires are sinful desires. So to be a follower of Jesus, it means that we crucify self, especially when our desires are in opposition to the desire of God and the will of God for our life. I remember this just so vividly. Years ago, when I was pastoring in a college community, or literally on a college campus, I had a young man come to talk to me, and he just said very matter-of-factly, I struggle with same-sex attraction. Pastor, I struggle with this. For years, I've prayed to God that he would remove this desire from me. But then this is where he said, and he, and he turned to this passage here. It was very inspiring to me because he, in conversation with this very passage here, he said, ultimately, my identity is not my attraction. Who I am is more than this sinful desire. So for him to deny self was, was very much connected to something that was implicit in who he felt he was attracted to. In that moment, he actually was attracted to. But to follow Christ meant crucifying that desire on a daily basis, understanding that desire doesn't define us. So the lordship of Christ means the denial of self. Now that can take a lot of manifestations, not certainly just in uh, sexual attraction. Uh, It it has a myriad of implications for the way we spend our money, our hobbies, our preferences, uh, what we say with our mouth, how we operate within our workplace, how we parent, our marriage. Ultimately, there is a call upon our life to every nook and cranny of who we are. So the Lordship of Christ, it means the denial of self. But finally this morning, I just want you to see plainly from Scripture here that the Lordship of Christ means embracing a cross-shaped life. To take up your cross, it means literally, well, for those original disciples, when Jesus says, take up your cross and come and follow me uh, for all except for Judas and John, that meant literal martyrdom. And for thousands of years, People have read this passage here, especially with oppressive governmental regimes that have stomped out Christianity. To read this passage meant, literally, to follow Christ meant uh, potential imprisonment or even death. Even more recently, over these last 20, 30 years, certainly in this last uh, 20th century, and even more recently, uh, across the world, there are hundreds of thousands of believers who read this passage and they understand to, to claim Christ means taking up a cross. It could mean uh, familial alienation, being disowned by family, being written out of wills, being kicked out of the home, and even worse than that, imprisonment and then we know we know with wonderful organizations like the voice of the martyrs that help us pray for the persecuted church that there are hundreds of thousands of believers who uh, who who are killed for their faith but you watching this I me mean, that's not something that is most likely going to occur in your life and in my life not not here within this context it could certainly no doubt it does there's no doubt about that but for many of us it's not going to be that so we we read this passage and we we sort of uh, smooth out the rough edges of, of martyrdom and we say well that's not going to be me so what does it mean to take up a cross so you'll hear people say well this is just my cross to bear and most often when you hear somebody saying it's my cross to bear they're talking about hardships they're talking about trials they're they're talking about a temperamental boss they're talking about a rebellious child they're talking about health struggles that they have, but understand when Jesus talks about taking up your cross, he isn't talking about enduring what is beyond your control. That isn't the essence of this passage here. Those are trials, yes. Taking up your cross, no. So then you say, well, David, what, what does it mean to take up your cross? I, I think the, the insight for me, I've always had a struggle with this passage, but it, it really came into 2020 focus when I, when I could see this passage through the lens of Christ and understanding that the garden of gethsemane gives us this key to understanding this passage here here is jesus in the garden of gethsemane on his way to jerusalem on this way or excuse me he's in jerusalem but he's on his way to the cross here and in this moment in the garden he says if there's any other way let this cup pass god so he's speaking to his father but then he comes to this place of relinquishment of his will and he says not my will but thy will be done so notice what Jesus is doing here. He's denying self. He's saying, if there's any way, let this cup pass. But he denies that desire to remove himself from the pain of the cross, the anguish bearing the wrath of a holy God toward sin of you and me and all of humanity. He realizes the psychological, the physical, the spiritual depth of the cup that he must drink. And so in his humanity, he says, let this cut paths but he denies self and he takes up literally takes up his cross by saying not my will but thy will be done it's disheartening isn't it it's disheartening in the workplace it's disheartening in your life when someone will ask you to do what they're not willing to do or what they haven't done themselves It, it can be demoralizing but notice what Jesus does here he lives out what he calls us to take up. He has he, he gone before us by saying, not my will, but thy will be done. And so taking up your cross is that posture of you saying, not my will, but thy will be done no matter the cost. No matter the cost of convenience, no matter the cost of comfort, no matter the cost of whatever you would do in my life, ultimately, what we are saying on a daily basis when we take up our crosses, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. Your agenda, God, is more important than my agenda, your agenda, if it conflicts with my dreams, my pursuits, my ambitions, my best laid plans for my today or all of my tomorrows, then so be it, Lord, because your agenda, it wins out. Your plan, it wins out. Not my will, but thy will be done. And there's joy in this journey. I want you to see this. There's joy in this journey when you realize that Christ's plans for your life are far greater than your plans. His direction for your life is far more sure than... the the direction that you think you you have for your life, uh, the plan that he has for your life is is far more sturdy. So when we say, not my will, but thy will be done, this is the greatest, joyous uh, gift that we can experience when we give ourselves and we relinquish our will and we submit to his will. When we resist it, we're sort of like the the six-year-old kid that's got this backyard pool that he's his parents bought from Walmart and he's got a little water hose that he's filled up and, and he will not leave that. And his parents have packed the vehicle they got the station wagon packed to the brim and all those brothers are loaded up and they're headed to a week at Disney. But, but he wants to stay in that backyard Walmart uh, swimming pool because that's what he knows. And that's what it's like for us when we, when we hold on to our will. Now, am I saying Taking up your cross denying yourself as a Disney vacation? No, but you get the illustration here. You get that it's, that what he has for your life is far greater than your plans and my plans. And as we follow him, our dreams, our pursuits come in line with his dreams and his pursuits for us. And as he is an infinitely good, infinitely loving God, there is no greater path to lasting joy than through the path of self-denial and taking up your cross. Many of you might be familiar with Sir Ernest Shackleton. He was this British explorer, early 20th century. So in the early 1900s, he takes several perilous journeys to Antarctica. And this sort of legend tells us he's advertising for recruits in the London Times and he took out this ad that read this way, men wanted, for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful honor, and recognition in case of success. Christ is calling you. He he is taking out an ad. Uh, ultimately upon the cross as he said not my will but thy will be done he has given us the clarity of his word and he is calling you to join him through him and through his victory on the path of discipleship and as Dietrich Bonhoeffer that great German pastor and one who felt even the pains of martyrdom he said it so well in his book called the call of uh, cost of discipleship when Christ bids a man he bids him come and die. And there, death to that old self, taking up the cross, it's there that we find true lasting joy. Now you might be hearing all of this and you say, hold up, hold up now, come on, come on. Following Jesus, I'm all about that. I'm all about following Jesus I'm I'm so excited about getting my best life right now, getting to fulfill my destiny, to realize my dreams. Of course, He's my Lord. I want you to hear me. If that's where you are, maybe you need to hear this. You're saying, Lord, But if you're not sure about denying self, if your concept of lordship doesn't include taking up a cross, if that's you this morning, you keep using that word Lord, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Let us pray. Gracious God, it is through not me Not I, but through you that we have hope. It is Christ in us that is our hope. So as we deny self and we take up the cross, as we follow you down that path of discipleship, we pray that wherever you lead, that we will go. That your will, your plan, your path is far greater than our will, our plan, and our path. So may we submit to you in the daily decisions of our life, in our singleness, in our marriage, in our job pursuits, in every aspect of our life, may we see the way that you would desire for us to deny our self and to take up our cross as we say, not my will, but thy will be done. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.